0: Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. Good physics day, everyone. Or today, maybe it's good chemistry day, everyone. Hmm, Not quite the same ring. I'll have to work on an alternative, uh, But yes, I'm exploring one of physics sister disciplines today, chemistry. What have they been up to in the world of education? But before we get there, I want to circle back to a few previous guests. So Brian Lane, guest from episode 12. Uh, is producing some new videos on Let's Code Physics. And the series that I've been watching over the last few weeks is a series called Coding with Projectiles. This is a recent series that he's been doing, and uh, he's just using uh, the trinket.io website. So that's what I followed along with. I didn't have to do any installation. I just logged on. I made a quick free account, and I've been following along with his videos and learning a lot about coding. You know, it's, it's one of the pieces that I haven't, uh, done as much of in my physics career. And I've, I've been a little bit nervous about it. But I, I have to say, you know, the way he does his videos and how accessible he makes it is so great. And it really uh, makes it more and more possible for, for me to think about bringing that into uh, the physics classroom. Wanted to give a little reminder about an episode I did with James O'Brien, a guest from episode 10. uh, And I talked with him about the, I'll call it board game Sector Vector, but really it's kind of a replacement lab. uh, Sector Vector, the space battle physics game. Uh, So this is something from fourthlawlabs.com. And if you haven't heard that episode, you should check it out. Uh, with With the holidays coming up, maybe you could find a little money in the... In uh, your physics budget for getting the game for your department, whether to use it in the lab space or maybe just to have fun with your students and get to think about vectors. And also, I want to mention that Louis Delarier, my guest from episodes twenty-eight and twenty-nine, was interviewed by the Science Magazine podcast uh, very shortly, actually after I had interviewed uh, him myself. So that is the September thirtieth episode. Uh, so you may go and check that out, the Science Magazine podcast. Okay. So chemistry, what do I know about chemistry? Uh, maybe not a whole lot, but uh, when I was at the University of New England, one of my colleagues there, Joe Simard, he would often teach organic chemistry over the summer. And what I learned from him is that he was using a different method in the classroom, something called the Pogel method. And now being outside of chemistry, I'd never heard of this. But uh, as he talked about, I realized there was so much uh, student work and interaction in the classroom. It really stepped away from using the lecture and instead uh, allowing students to be working in groups, working through data and trying to figure things out for themselves. So obviously something that I get very excited about. So I got a chance to to learn about POGL from Joe and I'd always been curious to learn a, a little bit more. So I, I've had the opportunity now to dig into that. So POGL is an acronym for process oriented guided inquiry learning because POGL is a student centered instructional approach in a typical Pogle classroom or laboratory. Students work in small teams with the instructor acting as a facilitator. The student teams use specially designed activities that generally follow a learning cycle paradigm that includes exploration, concept invention, and application. And I want to figure out what all of that means. Today's interview is part of a podcast exchange. I reached out to the production team for the Pogle podcast. Their podcast got started around the same time as mine did. And I thought this would be a fun interview exchange. So they spoke with me about the Physics Alive podcast and what I'm doing with it. And now today I'm speaking with a longstanding member and founder of the Pogo community, Rick Moog. He's had an instrumental role in its development and is currently the executive director of the Pogo Project. So let's see what this conversation is all about. Today I'm speaking with Rick Moog, professor of chemistry at Franklin and Marshall College and the executive director of the Pogo Project. He was the 2016 recipient of the George C. Pimentel Award in Chemical Education from the American Chemical Society. Hello, Rick. Welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you for speaking with me today.
1: Hi, Brad, and thanks for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Yeah, this is going to be a, a fun little collaboration. I, I spoke uh, last week in my time with the Pogel podcast group, and, and you were present, and I got I got to speak on that podcast. I don't know when that will be released. I don't know when this episode will be released, so those times are irrelevant. Uh, but this has been a fun little exchange, and I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from you. So according to the website, Pogel.org... Poggle is a student-centered group learning instructional strategy. And this moniker can describe a lot of approaches in physics as well. Modeling instruction, aisle, scale, teal, uh, scale-up teal, peer instruction, and, and on and on. All groups I'm hoping to talk to along, along the way. Uh, each one has a different methodology, a different underlying philosophy. So what does this look like for Poggle? Can you unpack this acronym and talk a little about the philosophy and methodology of this
1: environment? There really are two major components to POGL, or process-oriented guided inquiry learning. There's the process-oriented part, and there's the guided inquiry part. So I'm going to begin with the guided inquiry part. So um, our approach is one that's based on a three-phase learning cycle, broadly construed, um, of exploration, uh, concept invention, and term introduction as sort of a middle phase, and then application this is a <clears throat> this is an approach to instruction that was actually developed in the 19, early 1960s by Robert Karplis and some other educators at University of Chicago oh, it was a that room. is a name in the modeling community as yeah. well yes. interesting there, there's okay. a good reason for that that's right because it's it's kind of it is actually the, the modeling approach i mean it, it's the the structure is very similar that is you you uh, in the modeling approach, right, you, you you create some data that you're going to draw conclusions from. In the Pogel approach, we typically present the information uh, that we want students to be working with and then guide them to uh, reach conclusions uh, about the information that's been provided that are the key concepts we want them to develop and then apply what they've learned in a new concept to solidify it. So that approach actually was originally developed to teach um, elementary school science instruction um, for people who are oh, okay. you know, concrete learners yeah it's kind of an interesting approach and you know in, in and so that's that's the that's the core uh, of the of the um, instructional uh, 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 framework is that kind of learning cycle which I think is very similar as I said to the 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 framework that's used in the modeling approach. The other part of the acronym POGEL is the process-oriented part, and I think this is a part that perhaps distinguishes the POGEL philosophy from others, um, and that is, a, it's an explicit um, acknowledgement that in the context of developing content knowledge, we want students to, to be developing other skills, other learning skills, lifelong learning skills, interpersonal mm. skills, things that we call, um, you know, th- that we would refer to as process skills. Things like critical thinking, problem solving, that are kind of the standard things that people uh, at, uh, talk about, but also um, teamwork, written and oral communication, information processing, um, and kind of sort of the developing metacognition and other kinds of, you know, self-management and self-regulation skills. And so the idea is that in any given learning environment, in the context of developing the content knowledge that stu- we want students to have using this kind, of, this kind of guided inquiry learning cycle approach, we also want to be thinking about what really is the, the, the ultimate purpose of education broadly which is to develop people who are lifelong learners who are effective at work at, at working with others and who understand something about themselves as learners and as, and as part of a, a team as I often say to to, to faculty members uh, and and high school teachers who I talk to. If you read the, the mission statement of Franklin and Marshall College, it doesn't mention anything about balancing chemical equations or no. applying Newton's laws <laughs> or con- being able to conjugate verbs. It doesn't have any of that in it. It talks about using process skills, right? It talks about mm. bec- being, a, being an active citizen, being able to accomplish things on your own and in teams, being able to contribute to society, you know, those kind of things, that's where the development of process skills comes in and is really important.
0: Now, how upfront are you with students within this curriculum about what this looks like? So I could see, for instance, talking about the learning cycle and showing like, this is why we're doing it this way. This follows the cycle. But I, I almost feel like maybe the process oriented part might be a little bit more in the background that the teacher is working from, but maybe that
1: isn't shared with the student or, or maybe it is. So I'm, I'm a little curious about that. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And, you know, one of the things that I'll, uh, my answer to almost every question you ask from now on about the implementation of Poggle is, well, it depends, right? Uh-huh. Uh, right? <laughs> because pogel isn't um, a curriculum or an instructional a set of instructional rules it's a way of thinking about instruction that's how we that's how we think about it right mm-hmm. right it's a way of thinking about instruction and so because every learning environment is unique every set of students is unique every instructor is unique every physical environment is unique the way that pogel gets implemented is essentially different every time it gets implemented by every instructor. Right. And that happens to me also. I do things differently depending upon who the students are and where they are and how they respond and what seems to be the things that we need to work on. So let me just say that, you know, from the beginning, you, if you talk to 12 Pogel instructors, you'll get 27 different answers to almost any mm-hmm. question. <laughs> right. Because uh, it just yeah. depends. Right. And it's all about, because we're really about the philosophy and the approach rather than here's what you do so with Mm. that as a prelude here's what i will say Um, this semester with my general chemistry students um, it became clear early on that they as a group and this is not uncommon that they were not particularly strong in understanding what constitutes a full argument, right, um, in the sense of of what a critical thinking kind of argument would be, right? That you have you make some claim, you have some evidence that supports that claim, and then you need to connect the evidence to the claim in some c- Some valid and constructive way. Right. That's what the nature of an argument. And of course, that's the nature of an argument in any discipline. It's just that what is the what are kind of claims you make, what kind of evidence you use and how you connect them differs from discipline to discipline. Right. Making an argument in a history course isn't the same as making an argument in a physics course. Right. Necessarily. So it was clear that was something early on that was, it, you know, in the first week, it became clear that was not something this particular t- group was good at. And it's not uncommon for that to be the case. So I became very explicit about it. Mm-hmm. I said, look, one of the things we want to do is develop the skill of making a full argument, right? It, that is actually what I would call critical thinking, right? That you, you're good at critical thinking. you, you Critical thinking is making a valid argument based on evidence, right? There's more to it, but but that's the core. And so we've been I've been very explicit about it, right? I've graded things using that paradigm. I've when when I when when we've slipped in terms of our um, our ability to uh, apply that that paradigm effectively, I've stopped the class and I said, okay, we just took this one question quiz, and here are the kind of answers that you've generated. And here's why they're not complete arguments. Let's talk about that. Let's make sure we're Mm -hmm. doing things that are complete arguments. So I won't say that that's what happens in every class, but that is certainly a theme. And one could have, um, and some instructors, I will say, some instructors will say, just like they do for content learning objectives, here's the activity we're doing today. Here are the content learning objectives. And here's the process skill we're going to work on. So okay. um, we're going to assign somebody in the team to be the reflector and to comment on the extent to which your team is um, working effectively as a team. Because that's the skill we're working on today is teamwork. Mm-hmm. Right. So people do that all the time.
0: Yeah, I I see that when, when planning labs here at at Hamilton College, you know, with the different folks I work with, you know, we're, 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 we kind of wrestle with what are the goals of our laboratory sections. And I think those goals are, are different in everybody's mind. So it's kind of, uh, you know, how do we agree? It's like, maybe what do we do in the intro course? What do we do in the, in the second year course? So um, that's, I, I love hearing that, that Pogo has this flexibility associated with yes. it. And I, I think some of my, my questions get into, um, thinking about, you know, is it actually a full curriculum? And it seems like you've, you've gotten to the point that it's not necessarily really that, but we'll kind of dig mm-hmm. into what, what that means. Sure. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's dive into the nuts and bolts of an activity that is on the ground and running. Mm-hmm. So I step into your classroom for the week and I want to experience the Pogo methodology. Mm-hmm. So maybe pick up a, a paradigm activity. How does it
1: unfold start to finish? Uh, probably the best example that I can do for your audience, right. That will be easy to follow is I think um, is an activity that that's about the components and structure of an atom. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, this is the very first activity that I do in general chemistry. It's actually the activity we do on the first day. The students have had no preparation. Now most of them have had a, a course in high school, but, you know, they don't, they don't know that there's no pre-reading. They're not like prepared to do this. So mm-hmm. this activity is about developing the concepts of atomic number, um, of mass number, and the idea of what an isotope is. That's what it's, and, and, and charges on ions. It has sort of those four components to it, right? So we begin with a bunch of information in the activity. So there's a, there's a page that has, sort of a cartoon representation of eight different atoms and ions where the nucleus is either represented with, you know, some balls that are, you know, some circles that are either, you know, colored in for protons or not colored in for neutrons, and then some dots out in space around them that represent the electrons, right? Um, And then for nuclei that are too big for that, we just kind of indicate this is how many protons and neutrons there are in this nucleus and the, the appropriate labels are given. So, a, you know, a hydrogen one atom is shown, a hydrogen two atom is shown. I think an, an H1 minus ion is shown. Um, there are three isotopes of carbon. Actually, actually, there's two. There's carbon twelve. There's carbon thirteen, and maybe there's a carbon thirteen minus ion. I mean, you get the idea. There's just they're just presented there, and there's no. And then at the bottom it says something like, carbon twelve and carbon thirteen are isotopes of carbon, and hydrogen one and hydrogen two are isotopes of hydrogen. That's what's presented. There's no definitions given. There's there's maybe there. I think there's I think the atomic mass of each of the Um, of these uh, uh, species is given, but there's no explanation. It's just, here's a bunch of stuff. And then there are a series of questions that lead the students to first carefully examine the model, which is the, 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 the information that's provided, and then guides them to reaching conclusions about the information and how it relates to some things on the periodic table. So there might be, initial questions might be, how many protons, neutrons, and electrons are there in carbon 12? How many protons, neutrons, and electrons are there in carbon 13? How many protons, neutrons, and electrons are there in carbon 13 minus? They might put those into a table. They might examine some other examples. Then there's some questions about, you know, what do all these things have in common? What's different about them? Um, And then there might be a statement that says, you know, sort of once it says, what do all these things have in common? What do all the carbon atoms and ions have in common? And the students say they all have six protons. What do all the hydrogen atoms and ions have in common? They all have one proton. Then um, there might be a statement that says after that concept has been developed, the atomic number is the number of protons in a nucleus, right? So the idea is that We have this exploration phase, which was what's in the model, then some some guiding questions. Then we have the concept invention phase. What do these things have in common? And that comes along with, followed by, that is, term introduction. What does the atomic number mean, right? And then there might be an application question that follows that, which is, um, um, you know, what's the relationship between the, you know, you know, what's the relationship between the atomic number and you know some number that's on the periodic table something like that so that students see that the number on the periodic table is the atomic number and then there might be a question like how many protons are there in a nucleus of nickel and then students can apply what they've learned so i i think i'll stop there that's the general gist of how it works there's exploration making sure they can interpret the diagrams or information or graph or text that's been provided for data there's guiding questions to lead them to develop a concept, often at, right, at, right after concept development, the term is introduced, and then there's some application of what they've learned.
0: Yeah. So what, what I'm hearing is kind of your lecture approach, maybe at the very beginning, you start with the term definition, and then you do a couple of practice problems. Is, is, you got it? Okay, let's move on. Uh, as opposed to this, where it's like, here's some stuff. Why don't you look at it and see what trends you see? That's right. In fact, and then the definition comes after that when they've had a chance to sort of grapple with it's like, what what do all these pieces even look like? So they've had to mostly invent it themselves.
1: Yes. It turns out, I don't know um, uh, if there is a comparable example in the physics education literature, but in the mid 1980s, Michael Abraham at um, University of Oklahoma did some did some work in a high school classroom to sort of investigate this carpless learning cycle of exploration, concept invention, slash term introduction, and then application by um, examining some work that was in, actually in both chemistry and physics cal- classrooms, as I recall, that um, that had these, these three phases presented to students, different groups of students in a different order, right? And as you've just articulated, mm. Brad, textbooks, at least historically, have done things not in the carpless learning cycle order. What they've done is they've done term introduction first, then application, right? And if there's any and no 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 exploration or concept invention, right? It's just mm-hmm. here's what you're supposed to know. You know, here's the def atom, here's the definition: atomic numbers, the number of protons in the nucleus. Okay. How many protons are there in a nucleus of nickel? How many protons are there in a nucleus of, you know, whatever, right? And what Abraham's work showed is that doing all three of those phases in the order in which they they are done in the Carpless learning cycle led to longer term retention of the information and um, deeper conceptual understanding than any other order or leaving any of the components out. And anyone who's who's done modeling or who's done Pogel knows that that's true, right? It's just the students, mm-hmm. the students building things in their own mind before, even before being told what the name of the idea is, um, ends up having you know both literally and figuratively some place in the brain to attach the label that actually is meaningful, and it mm-hmm. stays much longer. Yeah, I definitely
0: want to look up that that Michael Abraham uh, study I'll, and the I'll work you, he did.
1: I'll send you the reference, and then you can you can put it in the in the notes for the podcast.
0: Yeah, and and pretty much around the same time, probably you know, I think mid '80s. That's when David Heston is yes. in physics was. I think you know exactly thinking about those ideas, he began working with Malcolm Wells and mm-hmm. uh, there's there's another name I'm, I'm forgetting, but I, I think they were investigating exactly that. They're trying to say, hey. There, there's a different way that we can learn this. Let's look into these learning cycles. Okay. So it's interesting to see that in in that that kind of mid '80s time, there was there was sort of beginning to be this recognition from some folks. Mm-hmm. And then in the '90s, and I, I think I've got a question that that kind of dips into that a little bit along the way. That no, this is really oh, this is really interesting to hear. You know, I don't uh, obviously being invested in the the physics world, mm-hmm. I I haven't really heard some of the the evolution of some of these ideas in, in chemistry and biology right. and some of the other STEM fields. So this is kind of following up on that is, mm-hmm. and, and I think you kind of just got into this a little yes. bit, but I'm curious, is Pogo a framework that is ever present through the academic year or is it a set of independent activities that can be implemented as desired? Uh, so, you know, I think of like the modeling framework, you you have a very specific curriculum that you follow the whole time. Whereas I can pull a book off my shelf called uh, Tippers, uh, which are sense-making tasks in introductory physics. There's a lot of ranking tasks and, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, different conceptual type of questions that you can use and present or not use depending on how you want so i'm kind of curious where pogel falls sure. on that spectrum
1: yeah so you know it's really interesting because <clears throat> as i said from the very at the very beginning pogel is a philosophy it's a strategy it's an approach right it's a way of thinking about what how to design and implement a learning environment that's going to, that is student centered and that is going to, uh, if, if done well, but uh, result in, uh, in greater um, student um, development of student understanding, uh, conceptual understanding and success, right? So it's a philosophy and it's a philosophy that can be implemented, I think, independent of what, what I would call Pogel activities, right? So, okay. Right. So it's, it's a philosophy, right? I think that for example, um, right. That's, it's a, that's a way of thinking about it. Right. It is important that instructors, you know, create learning. To me, it's important that instructors create learning environments that they think are going to be, be the ones that are most effective for helping the most students in their classrooms, um, Achieve the learning goals that they've set for the students, right? I mean, that's why we're there, right? And mm-hmm. so, different people have different learning goals and have different ways of achieving them. Having said that, um, it is the case that the Pogel project um, has is is also in, interested in developing activities that are to be used in Pogal learning environments, right? And, for example, mm-hmm. this whole thing started. When a colleague of mine and I uh, went to a workshop back in the spring of 1994 that gave us some of the initial ideas, and we wrote an entire curriculum for General Chemistry 1 over the summer and during the fall while we were implementing it. Um, uh, yes, it's the best time to write right, curriculum, right? <laughs> right. Just, just in time teaching <laughs> right. on our side. That's, yeah, it's a good thing there were two of us because I don't think we could have one of us could have kept up as we had to after fall break. But anyway, um, mm-hmm. and we found because we had go, we we found that using this approach every day in our relatively small classes we had on the order of 24 students in a section mm-hmm. um, was going to be the best thing we thought for all of our students to be successful and so we've developed the, the project has developed a number of collections of activities for the for the undergraduate level that could serve as the essentially you know but over 80% of the curriculum for a course, right? So we have materials in general chemistry, organic chemistry, the the quantum mechanics course, the thermodynamics course that one could use as the basis for your your everyday in class. And I've done that for the general chemistry and physical chemistry courses, and it's effective. But that's not what everybody does at the undergraduate level. Some people have, have decided to use Pogil activities in their recitation sections, right? In their discussion sections, mm-hmm. in conjunction with large lectures. Some people have, you know, once a week we're going to do a, a Pogil activity. Every Friday we're doing a pogal activity, and on Monday and Wednesday we're doing a more traditional interactive lecture. Um, at the high school level, where we have activities and where we're we're just about to release a collection of activities um, that we we've termed conceptual physics. Um, for sort of the middle school to kind of, you know, physical science y kind of stuff to a more conceptual based, not mathematically based physics course in high school. Um, we don't, that's not a full curriculum, right? It's got maybe, I forget, it has maybe 25 activities, maybe fewer, I'm not positive, that can be used one or two per unit, maybe a few per unit, um, to complement the other things that a physics instructor would be doing. In a high school um, physics class, and I think um, would probably complement the modeling curriculum incredibly well. Right, right. So people do all kinds of things. We, we you know, uh, it, with with the with the materials um, that we have. So again, it's an approach. It's a philosophy. And what I would say is that, you know, if somebody's using the modeling curriculum, and they want to think carefully about what kind of process skills they want their students to be developing with using the modeling curriculum. And if they're thinking about how their students are working in teams and what they're doing to explicitly develop teamwork skills, that's a pogle implementation as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's called that or not, and it doesn't really matter.
0: Yeah, it's really great to hear about the about the flexibility of this, because, you know, something with uh, with modeling instruction, I feel like that's that's a a bit a bit whole hog. Yeah. Uh, Like you got to You got to jump right in. And, um, you know, I've I've talked about modeling on my podcast before, and I had a chance to do that at University of New England. I have not been able to at Hamilton College. Uh, We've not been able to set up the structure yet Mm -hmm. for uh, kind of bringing the lab and lecture environment together. So something like a a Pogo approach is actually, uh, that has more of a flexibility that would, that would let me have, you know, bring that philosophy into the classroom to help kind of guide uh, the the way I might, I might do things. Exactly. Um, Yeah. I'm interested in in digging into the historical context a little bit, which you've, which you've started getting into now. So uh, I found two papers from the uh, from 1999 in the journal of chemistry, uh, the journal of chemical education. So one, Author by uh, One authored by James Spencer called New Directions in Teaching Chemistry, a Philosophical and Pedagogical Basis. So I'm going to guess this is the colleague you were probably working with. Um, And uh, the other uh, uh, authored by you, Spencer, and John Farrell called A Guided Inquiry General Chemistry Course. So it seems that Pogel was getting started in the kind of in the 90s. And it seemed like it was at Franklin and Marshall that it kind of originated at. Um, and this seems like it was a very exciting time in physics education as well with modeling, peer instruction and, and scale up all getting started around the same time. I'm thinking it's like this was a, a renaissance in STEM education. Um, so it seems like Pogel's roots were kind of there. I'm, I'm curious how that then evolved into I mean, it looks like it's a
1: it's a national project now. Right. So uh, that's a great question, Brad. And it's one that that I've uh, let me just I, I'm going to talk a little bit about it, but I first want to put in a, a plug for a book because i actually oh. wrote a book chapter that essentially answers this question okay there is a book and again i'll send you the the information that's published by stylus publishing the title of the book is Pogel, and then it has some long some some words after a colon that i've now forgotten and i don't uh-huh. <laughs> to it right here it's like pogol you know an introduction for people who want to you know Enhance student learning or it's something like that, but it's by stylus. I'll send you the, the information. Mm -hmm. And in that chapter, I actually, it literally answer this question. So, um, uh, in, in one of the early chapters, but that book for people who are interested in Pogel, that's a great resource. It's not particularly expensive, the paperback version, and it has information, more details about the, what we mean by process oriented, more information about what we mean by guided inquiry. And then it has, you know, talks about, um, facilitating uh, Pogle learning environments in large classes, in non-STEM fields. It's just, it's a really great Mm -hmm. resource with Mm -hmm. a really nice bibliography associated with each chapter. So you or any of your listeners who are interested, that's, that's sort of the go-to place to learn more about Pogel without going to a professional development event. So let me just give you, uh, you know, I could give you the one minute, the five minute or the three day explanation of how this happened. Oh, let's take that middle of the the five minute one. Let me see if I can do the five minute version. So the five minute version is that several things actually were going on simultaneously. Um, It turns out that in the late 1980s, my colleague at FM, Jim Spencer, was the chair of the task force on general chemistry um, that was created by the American Chemical Society, in particular the Division of Chemical Education, to take a look at what was going on in the general chemistry course and what changes needed to be made. That was in the late 80s and early 90s. Mm-hmm. So that was that was happening. And what they what that um, task force came up with was that the general chemistry course was, you know, they're sort of the colloquial a mile wide and an inch deep. And so the recommendation was that we um, focus on fewer topics, but ha- kind of have more of a, a more coherent basis for like what topics are actually included, as opposed to just Everything you can think of Mm -hmm. that used to be in the physical chemistry course and the inorganic course, just teach it at a baby level. So that was going on at that time. In at the same time, in the mid-1980s, there was some work going on at, at that time, the College of Holy Cross, which is now University of Holy Cross, there was some work going on in what they termed discovery chemistry. They were, as far as I know, the first chemistry department to actually implement and and uh, sort of publish about what is now called a studio approach to, um, to laboratory and, and to instruction. So it wasn't quite a studio approach, but what they were doing, it's very it's very much like a modeling philosophy. They were designing laboratory experiences for students to do in which different students collected uh, information in, it's not quite modeling, different students got information about a particular question and they would pool the data in the laboratory section and then try to reach some conclusion about it. And then they do that. Like at the beginning of the week, everybody would have lab. And then in the lectures on Wednesday and Friday, they would use the student data to kind of drive the discussion. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's not quite the studio approach, but it's sort of a precursor to a studio approach. So they were doing that. And um, one of the leaders of that, process at Holy Cross was a man by the name of Maury Ditzler, who was also on the task force with my colleague Jim Spencer. At, I joined the faculty at FM in 1986. So this was all happening right early in my career. Mm-hmm. And so and so um, and so at that same time in, 19, in the late nineteen eighties, I think it was 1989, Project Kaleidoscope was came into being. Um, that um, effort headed by Jeannie Narum was one to kind of bring together, uh, to, to bring together people in, in uh, STEM education to try to make some reforms and, and get things moving in a more student-centered way. And Project Kaleidoscope was a big power in the, um, all through the 90s and the, two, in the early 2000s in kind of moving uh, uh, educational reform in STEM in particular forward. And it still is going strong under the auspices of the AACNU. So all of these things were happening. And it just turned out that I got very interested in these kind of student-centered approaches, went to a workshop with my colleague, John Farrell, in 1994, having been spurred by the kind of work that Jim Spencer was doing with this task force, and we got very energized. And at the same time, I met a couple of other people, including David Hansen, who was working at Stony Brook University at the time. The time it was Stoney Stony Brook, who was interested in the same things and was starting to implement things in his recitation sections. There's a lot more that happened, but basically we started just doing this kind of work. Um, and coincidentally, in the at, at around ninety three or ninety four, the National Science Foundation put out a call for what they called systemic initiatives to change the chemistry. Um, the in particular introductory chemistry curriculum as a response to the task forces report, this needed to be done. So these, they, they mm-hmm. funded these huge, these five huge projects, multi-million dollars multi-year projects to change sure. the way chemistry is taught. Um, we happened to get involved with one of those, which was called the new directions project. And that was the sort of the basis for Jim Spencer's article in uh, 1999 and that way, we were able to. We were sort of the new traditions approach was let's just do more active learning. So we were part of that. Um, got a number of people around the country interested in using this kind of approach that didn't have a name yet, and mm-hmm. <laughs> and and also we by that time we'd written an entire year's worth of general chemistry materials. We had materials for the for the um, quantum chemistry course for the thermodynamics and kinetics course. We had a colleague who'd written an entire collection of organic chemistry materials. These were actually all commercially available so that by 2002, we were ready to get a, 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 when the, when the systemic initiatives came to a close, we actually applied for our own grant from the NSF to continue disseminating what we were calling at that time, lectureless chemistry because we had all these materials Mm -hmm. And we needed a name for the proposal, so we had to, we had to think of a name. And David Hanson at Stony Brook was very much uh, a process-oriented person. He was very much oriented toward developing those skills. Those of us at FNM, myself, Jim Spencer, and John Farrell, were very much um, guided inquiry-oriented people. So we needed a name. We combined the two. We just wrote a proposal and named it Process-Oriented Guided Inquiry Learning And that's how Pogo began.
0: It's kind of a catchy name. I have to say, I I like it. So
1: (laughs) that may have been more than five minutes, but it's, and there's, I left out a lot of details. Mm -hmm. So, but it's, it's, um, that decade of the nineties was, was quite um, the time for. Kind of- well, I'll,
0: I'm going to link my audience to a couple of the interviews you've done with the Pogo podcast, mm-hmm. because I, I know you you dove into that information quite a bit in there. I, I listened to that a, a few months ago and I don't remember all the details. I try tried, I tried not to listen to too much before I interview yeah. somebody in case I don't ask uh, simple, uh, basic enough questions and I leave my audience behind because I'm digging into the weeds. Uh, but <laughs> you, you've mentioned a, a couple of places where where Pogel got started. Mm-hmm. So obviously the general chemistry, the uh, organic chemistry, you, you mentioned uh, a, a quantum course, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I know it's it's gone beyond that into right. other disciplines now. i um, looking on the website. I, I think I see something about uh, biology, about anatomy and physiology. So I'm curious, what, what are some of the other disciplines sure. that it has made it into? And uh, has it made it to physics? Is that,
1: has that happened yet? <laughs> So those are, those are great questions. So we, we start all the people who started the Pogle and the Pogle project were chemists, and it was chemists who early on were aware of this. But once we started holding professional development workshops, we got people from other disciplines coming, including people from high school who thought this would, would work really well at the high school level. We have, we have materials available. Um, commercially for pretty much the entire undergraduate chemistry curriculum we have a and and the way that most of our materials outside of chemistry have gotten developed is by having people who have content expertise outside of chemistry learning about what we're doing and then wanting to um, write materials so we have materials in calculus one in pre-calculus um, we have some people who are working on a College level algebra course, and we have some people interested in, in developing some uh, calculus two materials. Um, mm-hmm. In the biology realm, we at the high school level we have course we have materials for an AP biology course, for an introductory biology course, for kind of a life sciences course at the middle school to mm-hmm. you know ninth grade level, and then we have a couple of collections of materials for anatomy and physiology. So. Uh, one it's is mainly used at the college level and one that's used at both the college and the high school level um in terms of physics you know we've we've had kind of a chicken and egg problem with 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 physics at the undergraduate level because <clears throat> and I should say and we felt that in many ways physics was not um An area that we needed to target because of the presence of the modeling curriculum and because Mm, of the the work that, you know, um, Lillian McDermott and her group has done um, at University of Washington to kind of provide some um, materials that are student centered. Um, So we've been less forceful in that area, but... Um, at the high school level, as I mentioned, we've got some materials at the, for physical science instruction at the middle school level and our conceptual physics material are coming out soon. And what we need is for some phys- people who are physics instructors at the undergraduate level to come to some of our workshops to learn about our approach and to see whether or not it will make sense for them to, um, to start writing materials because we really need people with content expertise to write the, the, the content.
0: As I've been looking into uh, the the Pogle uh, methodology and the philosophy and and seeing some of the information about workshops, I've gotten excited about the idea of uh, of attending one myself. And I have to say when i was when I was looking at the pages about the Pogol workshops, I saw, and I can't remember her name, but I saw a picture of somebody that I attended my modeling instruction workshop with back in two thousand and ten. And she had attended a Pogle workshop at some point. and, so I want to try to reach out to her and find out what her experience has been and if she's been teaching some chemistry along with physics. But I, I'm curious. So what what are the types of of uh, workshops that you had? Are they part of conferences? Are, are they standalone, uh, multi-day sorts of things? Do you find that you're getting people from all sorts of uh, uh, disciplines to attend?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, we do a whole variety of things. Um, and these are all you know if, you, if one goes to the pogle project web's website pogle.org you can can see what the variety of things are but we, we do both face-to-face and virtual introduction to pogle um, workshops so in that are essentially one day long um, where which are standalone for the most part uh, there's a fee to attend so that we can actually, Keep um, the the Pogo project alive and running. It's a five hundred mm-hmm. one c three not for profit, um, and we need funding from somewhere to pay our people, our our staff, and to um, run these various workshops. So those are standalone. Um, we 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 have they're both virtual and face to face, and that's at an introduction to Pogo workshop. That's where you would learn about some of the fundamental aspects of the learning cycle, what our activities look like, how we uh, put, put people in teams. How we facilitate in a, a, a team learning environment. Um, those kinds of things. We will also do those on a you know a fee for service basis. So we've had you know teaching and learning centers at colleges and universities, or um, school districts, or individual schools at the high school level, where we've gone and both virtually and face to face. Now uh, again, um, done workshops as an introduction. We also, but we have a variety of other things that we provide. So um, during the summer, we have, uh, when, we, when, we, when, we're, when we're doing face-to-face events, which we're hoping to do again this summer, we will have three-day events in which one can get a much more in-depth exposure to Pogel and the Pogel Project. We also have um, virtual uh, events during the summer that last for maybe three or four days out of a week. Um, You know, four or five hours a day to get into more in-depth knowledge about what we're doing. We have um, uh, a set of experiences that are for people who want to implement things in the laboratory, which may be of interest to people who are doing modeling instruction. We have uh, 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 tracks at our workshop, at our three-day workshops and on uh, virtual tracks that are focused on writing activities. Mm-hmm. We're going to have one that's focused on facilitating in the classroom. We have a writer's retreat. It's kind of an intensive acti- uh, uh, event for people who are trying to get more experience at writing activities we have a national conference every 2 years called the national conference to advance pogo practice that brings together about 100 people from all kinds of different disciplines who have been implementing pogo maybe for one year maybe for many years to share their experiences and uh, insights that they've gained so we do all kinds of of, of different things in addition we have uh, during the academic year we have what we call our webinars and our e-series, which are virtual events that are sort of that would be as they have described, maybe a, a webinar three or four times a year, where we have a speaker that um, to talk about a topic that's of relevance, uh, and then uh, people can ask questions. And we have what we call our e-series events, which are more workshop-like, but they're only a couple hours long, and they are on special topics, maybe on how to deal with at the high school level, how to, how to deal with non-compliant students in your classroom, or um, good ways to develop certain kinds of process skills, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I know for myself, the kind of the immersive experience is what really leads me to actually trying something in, in a classroom. So I, I'd be really excited about the the possibility of attending one of these these three-day ones. A quick side note, at this point in the interview, Rick and I began to have some connection issues. So the interview is going to be cut short a little bit from what I had intended, uh, including the the answer to one of the questions I'm about to ask. So I'll ask it here and then Rick will have a chance to respond. I'd like to give you a chance to share some final thoughts about Pogle, the response you've seen in the teaching community and from students, and what hopes you have for the future.
1: A need that people um, had for, I think, both uh, professional development that is um, useful and effective and implemented well but also the development of a community of of people that crosses that boundary between high school and college i think to me um from in terms of the teaching community that's been one of the most gratifying parts that we we view all of the instructors that engage in our activities and are part of the Pogo project community as peers and our high school teachers and, and now middle school teachers really value that, um, they're, that everybody is treated equally and are, are, are part of a community that we can learn from each other. That's just been incredibly exciting and gratifying to, to, to be able to provide that kind of context for people um, as educators. Um, students, um, we, we, we feel very good about the impact that we've had, whether the students agree with it or not. Um, that they like it, um, or that they feel like they're learning a lot. We know that students are in general overall are gaining more from this kind of learning experience than they would in a more traditional lecture setting. Um, not all students like it. Sometimes students think that, especially at the college level, they've paid to be taught and teaching each other you know, isn't what they what they signed up for. Um, but we know, That everybody, virtually everybody is gaining from the experience. What I always say to people is, look, there is no single pedagogic approach that is the best approach for every student. It simply is true. There is no such uh, magic bullet, as they they, might say. And um, as educators, our jobs are to think about what all of our options are in terms of creating and implementing learning environments that are going to do the best job to get the most students to achieve the learning goals that we've set for them. And for a lot of people, Pogle is a really important tool in their toolbox that they implement every day, once a week, whenever they think it's necessary to, to accomplish those goals. And so... That's that's what we're about. Um, whether the students um, like it or not is a different question. But in general, students love the Pogo learning experience because they're engaged. They can recognize what they're learning. It's it is harder. They have to be thinking during class. It is harder. But in general, you know, my experiences. Ninety percent of the students by the end of the semester say, "I wish all my science classes were taught this way." Um, for the future, wow, that's a that's a, it's a hard to say um, what the future holds. I think you know the vision the the, the vision the the Pogo Project has is that student centered teaching is going to be the norm, both in STEM uh, in STEM and across all disciplines, and I that's my hope for the future is that is that when a, when an instructor um, goes into the classroom and decides to lecture. That, that is actually a decision they've made after carefully considering all the other things they could do. And they'll be saying to themselves, you know what, I know that normally I have my students engaged um, with each other, talking, actively um, thinking, but today we really need to have me talk most of the time and here's the reasons why. And that that's why they're going in and delivering a lecture, not because um, that's, quote, that's the way it's done. That's what my hope is for the future. And, you know, with people like you and your podcast and the, the kind of organizations you've talked about with the modeling program and scale up and the Pogo project and, you know, the peer led team learning approaches and learning assistance. I mean, there's so many um, approaches that try to get at better ways to actually apply what we've learned about how students actually learn. And to get students actively engaged in the classroom and talking with each other and constructing their own knowledge, that I think there's a chance, maybe not while I'm an instructor, but perhaps, Brad, while you are, that that's what the norm is going to be. So thanks very much for inviting me onto this podcast. It's been a wonderful uh, conversation, and I'm so glad that we were able to, to meet and to make this exchange of podcast visits. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you, Rick. What a great conversation. I really appreciate getting out of my discipline to see what's happening in other circles, to see some other mindsets and to see the similarities and connections. You can find links to the journal articles and books referenced today in the episode in the show notes. Just scroll down on your podcast app or go to www.physicsalive.com slash Pogil, P-O-G-I-L. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. That's a great place to comment on the episode and keep the conversation going. You can also reach me at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. This will trigger a turkey uprising and spur the production of vegan turkeys for the Thanksgiving holiday, a sustainable and great-tasting alternative to the usual fare. Or it will help more educators find the show. It's one of the two. A quick plug for my Patreon page. Producing a podcast is great fun. I love speaking with guests and this way of serving the physics community fits well with my talents and interests. But producing podcast content is time consuming and requires fees to maintain a website and podcast hosting services and requires equipment to produce great audio. If you find this podcast valuable and if you have the means to help support the show, then please consider visiting patreon.com physicsalive Thanks again for listening in and I hope you've been inspired. Today's action step, give a listen to the Pogo podcast which you can find on most of the usual podcast hosts, or click on the links in my show notes. If you'd like to hear more from Rick, season one, episode one is a two-parter with him. I also really enjoyed season one, episode nine with Dr. Patrick Brown, a biology professor at East Tennessee State University. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever explore the philosophy behind your pedagogy and be well.